Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me here, Nadia, first of all. Uh, thank you, everyone of the Institute, Nahit and others, for this wonderful organization um, we received while um, here and this wonderful warm welcome. Um, 
Today I will talk a bit about the project Nadia already introduced on water management in pre-modern cities in the Middle East. Uh, and this is not research I've done on my own, but it's an, well, the grants I used to um, appoint uh, postdoctoral researchers in the project. So I worked with some archaeologists, Arabists, historians on this project. So everything I'm going to tell is not only my own, but also their research. So I want to give them credit for it. Um, organizing access to fresh water is perhaps one of the greatest challenges, as Nadia said, uh, the region faces today. And not surprisingly, water supply was also one of the greatest challenges the region faced in the past. Nevertheless, in the pre-modern era, societies were successful in providing water to highly populated cities, such as Abbas and Baghdad, and along vital roads as well, such as the Dartubaida or pilgrimage roads to Mecca. Uh, before I came here, um, just the past two weeks, I visited Jordan with my team, uh, and we saw spectacular Umayyad water systems, uh, systems of collecting water, storing water, mainly rainwater, um, as has to be done in this region as well, uh, had to be done in this region as well. Nowadays it's often water from the sea, I guess. But um, in the pre-modern era, mainly rainwater was stored, uh, unless cities were at big rivers. But in Jordan, um, it was mostly rainwater. And I have a few examples just to show you here, because I've just been there and I'm so enthusiastic about it. Today, this morning, it was raining which was spectacular, I think. Uh, and in Jordan, in the pre-modern era, you can see the picture left upside, uh, left uh, above. This is how they collected water in drains and brought it to cisterns, uh, and where they stored it for well, the rest of the months when there wasn't any rain. Um, and these are just a few examples of the water management I just saw in Jordan. This is all Umayyad. And the Umayyads clearly built on Byzantine systems that were already there. Um, yeah, in this project, uh, me and the team focused on the ways in which individuals, groups, institutions, and authorities organized water in large cities, uh, such as Baghdad, as I already mentioned, but also Damascus and Cairo. Um, so we focus uh, specifically on large groups of people. Uh, the pre-modern uh, pre Middle East sustained exceedingly large cities with up to 500,000 inhabitants, such uh, as in Abbas and Baghdad. These cities were much larger than contemporary Euro European towns, and these cities did succeed in organizing their water supply in one way or another. Uh, scholars uh, as Nadia said, still do not fully understand how this was achieved. And water management in the countryside for irrigation is similarly fascinating. But since I focus on the urban context and large groups of people, I will stick to the cities uh, for my talk today. And the reason for limiting myself to the urban context is also uh, led by the historiography, the traditional scholarship on the pre-modern city in the Middle East. 
um, older historical approaches have often suggested that the Middle East had weak institutions in comparison to pre-modern Europe. But this framing completely ignores the great success of institutions and infrastructures in this region in supplying water to larger populations under challenging circumstances. So I don't agree at all with that uh, characterization of weak institutionalism in the city in the Middle East. Uh, water scarcity in, in the Middle East, as in fact in the rest of the world, is not just a resource problem. It's not just a problem of environmental circumstances. It is for the better part also an issue of management. And this is true for the past, and this is also true for the present and the future, I think. Uh, and exactly this topic, so the interrelationship between water and management, or water and governance, is central in my research. So although I'm trying to map the water installations, such as these ones, um, the focus of me and my team is very much on the organization, the financing, the maintenance of these uh, water installations. We ask ourselves questions such as, who took on these tasks, who built water installations, who financed them, who maintained them, who organized their maintenance, and for whom were these installations built? Who were the people involved in the management? Were they authorities, collectives, neighborhood communities, elites, private individuals? The organization of such an essential facility as Freshwater teaches us a lot about the way of life, the way life was organized in cities in general. So it might also be, um, it, it, it might also be an inspiration for how to organize water management in a sustainable way in the future. And I will come back to that uh, by the end of my talk. Let me go back to the first slide. Um, let's start with the past. Um, on the left, we are looking at the 19th century photo of water carriers. These water carriers are filling their bags, their um, uh, water bags, uh, in the Nile. They walk into the Nile a bit away from the shore, from the banks, uh, because the water right at the bank of the river is less clear and clean, less fresh. And this is, of course, this 19th century photo is, of course, definitely an anachronistic image if we want to talk about pre-modern, if we want to talk about medieval water management. But since our medieval sources uh, refer to these water carriers in a very similar way, it's, re it's a relevant image to start with, I think. Uh, certainly, in the medieval period, rivers were some of the main sources of water, including water for drinking. We can't think about that now anymore, probably to drink from the Nile or the Euphrates. Um, on the right, we see an image from a, a 13th century manuscript depicting a water raising machine from Al Jazari's uh, text on mechanical devices, and it's driven by an animal. It's one of my favorite pictures. Um, let me start by discussing a bit the debate on the so-called Islamic city, the city, the pre-modern city in the Middle East. Um, this is mainly to explain the relevance of a study on urban water management and to explain also the background of my own research questions. 
uh, for decades, historians have discussed the concept of the Islamic city, an urban type that was considered to be essentially different from the European city. The history of institutions, and especially the history of urban institutions, has suffered a lot from a Eurocentric perspective. This started with one of the founders of modern social sciences, the German historian and sociologist Max Weber, and his analysis of the city. Max Weber analyzed the non-European world um, in terms of what the West had and the rest didn't have, the rest lacked. This is especially true for what he said about the city and for how these views have inspired generations um, of scholars. The idea of a typical so-called Islamic city, essentially different from a European city, was further nourished by Orientalist notions of a so-called dichotomy, essential difference between the West and the rest, the East and the West. Important elements in uh, both Weber's definition of the city and Orientalist notions of the Middle East were the presence of strong autonomous institutions in European cities and the lack of those institutions in the East. According to Max Weber, the city in the Middle East was rather a mixture of densely populated residential areas without an organizational or administrative framework. Weber attributed differences between the European and Middle Eastern city to the differences in religion. Islam thus determines the most important characteristic of the city in the Middle East, hence Islamic city, according to Weber. His analysis of, on the one hand, the European medieval city and its institutions, and on the other hand, the absence of these institutions in the rest of the world, forms an essential element is in his and Max Weber's thesis on the development of economic rationality and modern capitalism in the West. And he used this to explain what he called the economic stagnation of the East. Weber's thesis on urban institutional weakness has been criticized by many, but also still, unfortunately, continues to inspire many historians and political and social scientists, even until today, and it's often mentioned that arguments for the rise of the West and the alleged stagnation of the East in the early modern period. Criticism of this concept appeared most prominently um, already in the 1960s with Ira Lapidus' important book on Muslim cities in the later Middle Ages. Ah, next one. Okay, Lapidus concentrated on the urban society and urban organization. Uh, Lapidus still adhered to the dichotomy between the European and Islamic city, but in contrast to previous uh, generations of scholars, he argued that the Islamic city, or Muslim city as he called it, was not without structure and organization. He argued that in Muslim societies, uh, things were organized in a more informal, in a more fluid way. More and different kind of criticism on the concept of the Islamic city came in the 1980s and 1990s. Authors uh, such as Janet Avlorot, uh, André Raymond, and uh, Nezar al-Sayed, um, and many others criticized the essentialist approach and the very small number of cities on which the research had been based so far, mainly North African cities. 
They pleaded for more geographical and historical differentiation and context. And there were also differences in their approaches, while Abu Lorot, uh, for example, stuck to the idea of the influence of Islam on the city and its institutions, and Sayed and Raymond argued for context based on regional differences. And this is why uh, André Raymond um, uh, speaks about Arab cities uh, instead of Islamic cities. Raymond further uh, played an important role in the rejection of the idea of the Islamic city as economically backward. Since the 90s, few general studies on the concept of the Islamic city appeared. A few studies from area specialists which do use a more compar uh, comparative approach and deal with Islamic cities in general often continue to, to stress the importance of Islam in the development of cities in this region. However, most historians of the Middle East don't focus on the concept as such, but on specific cities or specific urban institutions. Well, with my project, I want to reframe the narrative of Islamic institutional weakness, and I hope to do that by looking at the management of water. So water is the lens through which we look at urban organizations. Or in other words, water management, broadly defined, provides the microcosm for the wider mechanisms and evolutions of pre-modern urban governance. So far, we have discovered in the project that multiple water systems function simultaneously, ranging from large-scale technological uh, systems, such as aqueducts, to public fountains uh, sustained by religious endowments, by duak, and on the smallest scale, water carriers. We all call them water systems, even a water carrier is a water system in our research. Uh, different systems require different forms of management and financing and serve different customers. So far, there does not seem to be uh, one answer to the question who was organizing the water. The patchwork of organizations and institutions, individuals and state authorities, um, sorry, the patchwork of organizations and individuals and state authorities involved seems to have been the rule rather than the exception. So the patchwork is the rule uh, in water organizations. On the other hand, um, we concluded so far that there existed highly diverse local situations and solutions to water management. Generally, the local situation is more dominant than, for example, political regime changes. The Umayyads in Syria, I just showed you some examples, uh, in Syria and Jordan, built on Byzantine systems. The Abbasids reused the Sasanian canals, canals around Baghdad and so on. Water infrastructure itself was often used, reused, and maintained for over very long periods of time. My hypothesis is, is also that the fact that there were so many diverse systems, not just one, was also the source of its sustainability. A central system or policy would have been too vulnerable in times of crisis or turmoil. And I will get back to that about the sustainability uh, of a hybrid system at the end of my talk. The cities in the Middle East were large, certainly compared to cities in Europe in the early Middle Ages. 
but also compared to European cities in the later Middle Ages. A city like Baghdad, built in the 8th century, grew into the cultural and e economic center of the Middle East, a center for scholars, traders, and many others. And estimates of the city's population vary widely from 250,000 to 2 million, with half a million being the most accepted estimate. The build-up area was about five times the size of Constantinople in the same period. The city of Basra, a city that the Arabs founded shortly after the conquest of Iraq, probably had 250,000 inhabitants by the middle of the 8th century. Also in later centuries in the Middle East, cities were still huge. Cairo probably had 200,000 to 250,000 inhabitants in the middle of the 14th century and was therefore comparable in population to Paris before the Black Death. And Paris was the largest city in Europe at the time. For such numbers of inhabitants, the water supply was a complicated matter. The same was true for the pilgrimage roads. Exploring the details of how this was achieved in cities in the Middle East is not an easy task. It requires the integration of both textual and archaeological data. Water history for the pre-modern Middle East is still a field in development, and so far most has been done by archaeologists, and mainly for the countryside and not for cities. So in the remainder of my lecture, I will discuss some examples of water installations throughout the Middle East and focus on the management of these installations. But first, what was needed for a sustainable water supply? The 14th century North African historian Ibn Khaldun talks about a good location of a city. Uh, then there is the water problem, he says. The place should be on a river or springs with plenty of fresh water should be facing it. And he goes on about it. And he mentions, for example, Basra, as you can see in the bottom, as one of the places which was not in a good location. Baghdad is always praised in Arab sources for its perfect location. Um, the stories have it that Caius al-Mansur, founder of the city, in search of a site for a new capital, saw this place as an ideal junction of waterways, bringing goods from all over the world. Contrary to Baghdad, Basra, further south, is often described in the sources as a city with an unfortunate location. It's not just Ibn Khaldun who criticized the location, um, and we don't know exactly why Basra was built where it was built. There must have been political and economic factors um, strong enough to build it in the place where it is. Uh, but it, was, it housed 250,000 inhabitants uh, within a generation of the conquest. Uh, but there is a constant discussion in Basra on the lack of fresh water. Uh, there's a famous poem by the 10th century poet Abu Isaac al-Sabit. It goes, Alas, I deeply miss Baghdad. I miss her snowy water. Here in ugly Basra, we are watered with only sickly yellowish drinks. How could we be satisfied drinking it, while in our land, like that, we clean our behinds with pure water? Contemporary sources constantly refer to the problems that Basra encountered in the first decades after the creation 
um, when or with the organization of water. Old Basra was not at the place where Basra is today. It was 15 kilometers from the river, from the Chatelard. Uh, and the 9th century historian Albalabali describes how the first generation of inhabitants of Basra complained about the quality of their drinking water and how they had to get it from far away and the dangers involved. The caliph and governor reacted to these complaints by ordering the digging of a canal from the Shatalarat to the city and also from the Euphrates to the city. And these important projects provided water for the city, but at the same time, they were expensive and difficult to maintain. And we hear a lot about redigging, problems with maintenance, and digging alternative channels. Obviously, these are narratives. Valadoli includes a lot of narratives containing sometimes entertaining stories, and they are also meant to praise the good governance by the governor and the caliph. However, if we are interested in how and by whom the water supply was organized, Abelabri does provide us with some answers. He demonstrates that at least he and his contemporaries considered the organization of fresh, fresh drinking water one of the obligations, one of the duties of the authorities, of the caliph. So the provision of water was not exclusively a private matter, it was also a public duty. That's at least what Baladoli wants us to believe. At the same time, the inhabitants of Basra did not always wait for the authorities to come up with a solution. Those who could afford it had a system built in which they collected rainwater from the roofs of their own houses. Moreover, the digging of uh, channels was not exclusively financed and organized by the governor. Private persons and private money formed an essential part of the managing of those channels. Members of the urban elite um, received land grants with the obligation to bring it under cultivation. And part of this cultivation was the digging of a canal. And we hear from Abeladori that these canals were not just used for irrigation, but also for drinking water supply of the communities in the city. In other words, also many private individuals took part in the organization and financing of drinking water. A similar dialogue between public and private interests is apparent in water provision in Baghdad and Samarra. Much of the textual evidence relating to the succession of uh, caliph capitals emphasized the role of caliphs and members of the elites in the planning and construction of at least the major backbone of these cities' hydraulic infrastructure. For Baghdad, the geographer Al-Yakoubi relates how during the initial stages of construction, Al-Mansur's round city, um, the wells and the canals were dug to bring the water to the building site, not only to supply drinking water or water for washing, uh, but also for brick making and moistening clay, so also for the construction of the city. Unfortunately, the layout of early Islamic Baghdad is not known through physical remains, and though textual sources describe the configuration of the canals that flowed through the city, details of the financing, construction, and management are rarely discussed. In one case, um, there is mention of a canal uh, that was dug by 
Caliph Al-Muqtadir, uh, suggesting continued elite oversight and investments in the hydraulic system. It's notable, however, that his description of the channels often relates uh, their route to the location of various palaces, palaces of the caliphs themselves, suggesting that providing water for these elites uh, was often a primary goal. Indeed, our conclusions so far are that uh, caliphs were only to a limited extent interested in hydraulic infrastructure that facilitated the public. There are some exceptions during the construction phases of major cities and with the prestigious water projects along the pilgrimage roads. The caliphs were interested in provision of water to the uh, general public. Uh, but in many other cases, they mainly provided water for their own estates and their palaces. Um, and the building and maintenance of smaller infrastructural projects for domestic use uh, seem to have been more um, left to the public themselves, to the communities themselves. Nonetheless, the canals and other pieces of infrastructure that were initially built to supply the palaces sometimes also supplied certain neighborhoods along the way. Not intended so, but along the way. And this can also be seen in Samara where Caliph uh, al-Mutawakkil uh, embarked on the construction of a new city alongside, uh, or a new city district, alongside a large palatial complex to the north of the existing city. One of the key elements to this new development was a canal, the Nahar al-Jafari, that would bring water, firstly, to his new palaces, again, and secondly, throughout the district, he had plans. So the construction began in 860 uh, Common Era, and although ultimately this canal was never completed, work was ongoing for approximately two years at the cost of perhaps more than a million dinars. We should keep in mind that there is a difference between newly founded cities and inherited cities. Basta, Baghdad, Samara were new, not that there was no pre-existing settlement at all, but these were small and nothing compared to the cities that came up uh, later. Although these new cities were also built on existing infrastructure, I already, uh, well, we just mentioned the Jafarik uh, channel in Samara was pre-existing, was a, a Sasanian canal in the first place. It had to be widened. Um, but these adjustments in new cities were still very different from the embedding within inherited communities and local regulations, such as in the case of Damascus. Damascus, the Umayyad capital, was clearly an inherited city. It's often referred to as the oldest continuous, continuously inhabited city in the world. The Arabs who came to settle in Damascus and its hinterland inherited a well-developed water infrastructure adapted to local environmental conditions. In addition, uh, the region was densely populated and its communities organized already for a long time their access to water via long-established practices and regulations. Uh, and the Arabs had to uh, relate to these uh, long-established practices. Later historians, such as Ibn al-Safir, 
tell us about the conflict and negotiations about access to water uh, taking place between the new Umayyad Arab elite and the local populations in Damascus and its hinterlands, and how the new Arab elite had to integrate and adopt existing lo local water regulations. That the Umayyad caliphs, despite being the new rulers, were nevertheless unable to simply appropriate water rights from the local communities, and that their embedding in the local infrastructure and culture was constrained by existing rules and as a matter of negotiation, becomes also clear from yet another episode on water narrated by Ibn Asakir. He describes how even the water uh, that was needed for the construction of the Great Mosque of Damascus in the center of Damascus uh, had to be paid for. Uh, the caliph had a channel constructed that drew water from the hinterland of the city right into the center of Damascus. The water that was thus diverted was bought by the caliph instead of being simply confiscated. Involvement from the caliph and his family is not only visible in capitals, such as I've discussed so far, um, but also very clear in the development of hydraulic systems for Mecca and on the pilgrimage road to Mecca. Again, we see here a blurring between state and private involvement, but in slightly different ways than the cases I discussed so far. In the Abbasid era, the water supply for Mecca was partly financed and organized as an act of charity by a woman, Princess Zubaydah who was praised for her achievements by many contemporary historians. Uh, the fourth century historian al Mazuri, for example, tells us about Zubaydah's investments in a well and an aqueduct in Mecca. And hence the pilgrimage road from the south of Iraq, from Basra and Kufa to Mecca, is referred to as the Darb Zubaydah, because she invested so much not only in Mecca, but also along the road. Uh, the provision of water as charity is based on references from the Quran and Hadith. Water plays a prominent role in the Quran. It's mentioned 63 times as a noun, and in addition to the mentioning of water, there are multiple references in the Quran to rivers, seas, springs, and wells. Um, water symbolizes creation itself. So the Quran also instructs believers how to manage this natural resource. Offering water to the poor and needy and building public water works were important acts of charity throughout history from the early days of Islam onwards. According to a well-known saying by the Prophet Muhammad, in every thirsty living thing there is charity. And when the Prophet was asked what good works are better than others, he said giving water for drinking, both for uh, human beings and animals. In fiqh literature, Islamic jurists argue that water in its natural form is one of the resources man holds in common. It is for the benefit of mankind. It cannot be owned and no person can sell it, rent it or directly tax it. Drinking water for men and beasts and water for domestic use take priority 
over agricultural needs. Hoarding of surplus water by individuals, even if all the needs of the community are met, is forbidden. But collective storing of water in tanks and artificial lakes for future use of the community is allowed. Responsible for organizing the water supply is according to the 11th century scholar, 11th century common era, Almawardi, and I quote, rulers should pay for resources which are in the public interest from the state treasury, but they are only required to do so when the money is available in the treasury. And he continues, if the money is not available, the treasury is exempted from it. If this state of affairs would lead to public harm, it turns into a collective duty for all Muslims. An example of this collective duty is described by the 15th century, remote in time, Mamluk historian, El Makrizi, who was for three short periods appointed as Muhtasib, inspector of the markets and public space in the city of Cairo. With Almacrisi's description of the water supply, we move from the legal theory on water to the practical application of the water laws in Mamluk Cairo. Almacrisi deals with the problems caused by the rise of the uh, cost of drinking water. In the middle of the 14th century, um, people complained about rising costs of water which was due to the shifting of the Nile banks and the subsequent increase in transportation costs. Engineers decided that the construction of an embankment might be a solution to facilitate the collection of water from the Nile. According to Amakrisi, the price of the construction had to be paid proportionally by those who owned land along this part of the Nile. The Muhtasib was responsible for the organization and collection from the landowners and the inhabitants of Cairo were held collectively responsible for financing of water supply. But it's the Muhtasib who initiates and organizes the whole process. This Muhtasib, the market inspector, was also responsible for the control of the water carriers. In all Middle Eastern cities and throughout the pre-modern and sometimes even modern period, Drinking water was often transported from the rivers and wells in skin bags by water carriers or on beasts of burden. These water carriers provided an essential uh, service. Uh, the ninth common era uh, century author Al-Jahiz argues in his uh, typical style that although the occupation of water carrier is the most honorable position a man can have, he has never seen a water carrier to be wealthy and prosperous. Unfortunately, Al-Jahiz says, wealth is concentrated in the hands of those useless bureaucrats. Archaeological evidence from El Pustaf, Cairo, gives us a more detailed understanding of how the water carriers may have operated. The houses that have been excavated at Al Pustaf had niches located at the entranceways with easy access from the street, uh, and these niches contained water jars, allowing water carriers to easily refill them uh, to top up the household's water supply. These water carriers were not 
public employees with commercial service providers who were presumably paid directly by households and, uh, and other users. Exactly how this service was arranged and how it operated in practice is a matter for speculation. Perhaps water carriers were engaged to deliver water to a household at regular intervals or on specific days, uh, presumably with the possibility to order extra deliveries if more water was needed, for example, um, when there were festivities. A final water installation that I will uh, discuss today um, is the so-called Sabil, the public drinking water fountain. We can still admire quite a few Sabils uh, in cities throughout the Middle East. The oldest Sabil with a foundation inscription uh, dates from the 11th century and is located in Damascus. Sabils were generally founded as wak, as a religious endowment, and organizing water supply through the instrument uh, of the wak again shows an overlap between private and public investment. For the founders of a WAC, this instrument was a multifaceted uh, and flexible instrument, serving both charitable and family purposes. The WAC guaranteed the protection of one's property from confiscation, while the founder's descendants profited from its revenues as designated beneficiaries. But in addition, the establishment of a WAC was a charitable act to benefit certain public services such as the water supply. And this work of piety provided legitimization for the elite, as well as care for one's soul. So, with the WAC and the Sabil, I've come to the conclusions. <coughs> the WAC and its wide range of goals, applications and intentions, both public and private, and the ways in which this institution contributed to urban water supply, shows us that it's difficult to make a difference between public and private investments in water management. I hope to have demonstrated that looking at all sorts of water supply, uh, formal, informal, public, private, if this differentiation works, top down, bottom up, that this whole um, overview of water supply will help us better understand the system as a whole. Secondly, by giving you a number of examples of water installations and the ways in which they were managed, I hope to have shown that water was not organized through a strong centralized system. Instead, we find multiple water systems which functioned simultaneously. And these diverse systems were organized in various ways by the state, neighborhood communities or individuals. And this organizational diversity seems to have been a source of the sustainability of the water supply as a whole. When one system went out of service, there was always an alternative way to organize the water, for example, by using water carriers. Thirdly, I have showed, I hope to have showed, examples of water provisions in cities throughout the Middle East, but it's good to keep in mind that water history is also very much a local history, dependent on the local environmental situation, but also building on long-standing local arrangements. There is, of course, also a change and development throughout time, 
uh, large water infrastructure often has, not surprisingly, a longer delay. But the local was perhaps much more dominant than the general political situation. Finally, some, some remarks on our struggles today throughout the world with sustainable water management, and especially in this region. The organizational diversity in water management of the pre-modern Middle East and the many community-based bottom-up forms of organization might be an inspiration for present-day water management. Some contemporary water projects in the Middle East, uh, but also in the Netherlands, for example, where I'm from, uh, have shown interest in our project, and I was really surprised to have this interest from modern water managers, but still. They were interested especially for what our research had to say about decentralized community-based forms of organizing water supply. Of course, I'm not going to argue that the water from the Nile or the Euphrates should be reintroduced as drinking water, although there are some interesting continuities in the uses of Panat systems and Sabils even. But it might be interesting to exchange ideas with modern water, water managers and think about ways of organizing water on a more local, more decentralized, more community-based way in order to make people more aware of this and responsible for the water they are using. This might be You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.